In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalak, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is How Minds Change by David McRaney. How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. This book just came out a few weeks ago, seemed interesting, so uh, looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you next week. How Minds Change by David McRaney. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is... The Little Book of Huga by Mike Veaching. I probably said everything wrong there. The Little Book of Huga by Mike Veaching, a Danish Secrets to Happy Living. And so um, someone mentioned this book. I'd actually heard of this term before. I'd just seen it before, H-Y-G-G-E. And it's pronounced something like Huga, but it is a Danish word that... Uh, I'll get into what it means, as the author himself says. It's not so hard even to pronounce it so much as trying to explain it, because there isn't an equivalent word in English. And so often what we, we find, we think that language just corresponds to the world out there, but when we learn different languages, and if you know more than one language, you'll see that at times there are words that don't have a direct translation in another language. And so as a result... This can affect the way we think about things, the things that we focus on, the ways we even see different things based on the words that we use. And so one of the areas where we see words in some languages that don't exist in others is related to emotions and feelings, that you might have a word in a language that you might not have equal equivalent in others, or it might take multiple words to try to explain the concept, or there might be Um, different gradients of a word, like let's say anger, some languages might have more ways of saying you're angry that might be more granular or more specific. And so huga is one of those emotions that we don't have in English. And so explaining it can be a bit complicated, but it can be explained in various ways. He shares some of them, Um, the art of creating intimacy, coziness, the absence of annoyance, cozy togetherness and I heard him say a few times consciously cozy because it's something that at times you put effort and energy or at least focus on to create this feeling of huga this kind of cozy intimacy that that people we experience it as as I hear him talk about it it's not something that only Danish people do but they certainly seem to focus on it more than others and now he makes some connection because the author, Mike Veaching, is a the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. So he studies happiness and what makes people happy, but also what makes people happy in different countries or how happy are people in different countries. And many um, 
recent accounts looking at surveys and studies looking at happiness across the world have found that Denmark is either number one or always ranks in one of the top um, rankings as the happiest people or the happiest country in the world. And so he makes this connection that maybe this concept of Huga is related to that. Um, he also does mention, and I think it's very important, that when we're looking at the average happiness of individuals in a country, of course, how well everyone is doing is going to be a big part of that, meaning that how much inequality you have. And countries like Denmark have a very strong social security or welfare system, meaning that essentially everyone has their basic needs met, including universal health care and free college education and things of that sort. So no one essentially is doing so poorly. Everyone is doing at least okay. And so if you're looking at the averages, you're going to find that more people are doing okay. So uh, I think that's a big part of it is that, and I thought he does sprinkle those parts into the book quite well. The book itself has this cozy feeling, this feeling of huga to it. The pages have these drawings at times that are very nice and uh, friendly and warm. Um, and the, even the, the font and the way it's presented, it's a very warm book. I'm sure that was very intentional. But I also uh, thought it was obvious that he was sprinkling in these messages, sometimes quite clearly and explicitly, but also maybe implicitly about what makes people happy or what we should focus on rather than what we should not focus on in life and creating this type of intimacy and focusing on creating intimacy I think is quite important for leading to overall well-being and happiness, which he discusses in the book. But the book describes um, different ways that people focus on creating this type of environment, this vibe, which is often, um, it could be anywhere, but because of that intimacy and coziness that you can feel even if you're outside, but it's especially something that people create in homes. And so he shares little tips of things that people do in Denmark that we can take um, to use in our own lives. One big thing is that uh, the Danes love candles. They actually burn more candle wax than any other country in Europe, I think per capita, I would assume. Uh, per person, I think it was something like 13 pounds of candle wax uh, a year. So they're very big on burning candles and having candles. It's a very big part of their experience. Even in the office, they might have candles and they are very big in general on lighting that is more warm. Actually, it's funny here in the, the studio, I turned off the warmer lights and I turned on the more fluorescent lights. So I, I made it less huga in the studio as I talk about this concept, but they're very big on the lighting of it. And even they have some famous um, lamp makers and people in their uh, history that they uh, respect and people try to get lamps designed in certain ways that have a warmer tone to them because that's part of this cozy vibe that they create. Also things like wool socks and sweaters and scarves and blankets, things that make you feel warm are also a big part of this huga feeling, this experience that people um, have and they try to create. So that's another thing he talks about different things in clothing, foods that they eat that are at times comfort foods. Another big part of it is having um, sometimes something sweet or not so healthy, actually, an indulgence, a piece of chocolate or something of that sort is also a big part of these types of um, situations that they create or the coziness that they create is to have that. Even at the office, he talks about how 
people bring cakes to the office or sweets is a very common thing having like a cake list where people it will bring a cake or someone is assigned to bring a cake each week or some kind of sweet that is enjoyed during the meetings and creates this type of a more warm environment. And actually, I spoke with someone who is Danish, and she was telling me that it really is, uh, as he talks about in the book, such a focus of life that when people want to get together, they focus on this or let's get together for some huga, this kind of a feeling. Let's go to a place that's more this way or create an evening that has that sense. And so it really shows that the focus is on creating these types of moments, these types of connections. And he does touch on this in the book of why this might be. Uh, Part of it could be um, how it started. The weather there is quite cold for most of the year. And that's actually something interesting. When we think of happiest places, you would not think somewhere where the winter is very dark and cold, where there's barely any sunlight during some of the months and it's a pretty cold and what we would consider miserable as far as weather, but somehow the people are still happy. And so I think that could have created this focus on having these warm, comfortable, cozy moments. Even at times it can feel cozier. We've probably all experienced this. If it's raining outside and cold and doesn't feel so good and you are in a, under a blanket and feeling warm, it feels even better than if the weather was sunny and you were under a blanket. So there is at times this sense of having that safety or that comfort when you can see the un this the discomfort that I think is quite a, a big part of this feeling. And so it can make sense that in a country where the weather is so cold or a region where the weather is so cold and miserable, a lot of the times there could be this focus on creating this feeling of warmth in a more relational way. It also is tactile and temperature, but it's also this connection and that intimacy. So I think that's interesting. And it seems to have expanded because it's not only during the cold months. He does talk about how December and Christmas time becomes a big uh, focus on Huga and making this the the focus of the whole month essentially is creating these types of moments, but it's something that is part of their life every day. And so I think that might be related to some of the, the happiness that we observe there. Now, I'll also add this. At times I'm skeptical or I sometimes shy away from uh, books that have titles like the subtitle here, Danish Secrets to Happy Living, or you'll see books like the French Parenting Way to Raise, I don't know, Bebe or something. There's something, a book with that title that the French way of raising kids or the the Swedish way of doing this or the, you know, Japanese way of doing something. And I do think there's a lot we can learn from different cultures. I think that's absolutely very important, actually, to do that, to look and see what we can learn from other cultures, or what they focus on. I think sometimes the ways the books are written or the titles, at least, are presented as a way of showing that some country or culture has figured something out completely, or if you do it this way, it's going to be better. And it seems like uh, an exciting and appealing idea. I think there's things we can learn, but not to get too caught up in the, the feeling that, okay, the French are all raising their kids perfectly or figured it out, or these people have figured out this or that, but there's things we likely can learn. And so I, I felt the same thing in this book that I don't think that uh, Huga is the key to happiness or the most important thing, but I do feel like there is something quite significant in it. Because as he mentions when discussing happiness in more detail, and of course it does depend on how you define happiness, and he talks about some different dimensions, for example, asking people about their life satisfaction, so on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied do you feel with your life? 
Then there's the experiences of pleasure or joy, like the positive emotions that you experience, like hedonic type of a thing. And then there's also the meaning you get in life or how purposeful and meaningful is your life. But when we look at most long-term studies on happiness, we find that what is most important is the quality of your relationships. How strong is your social support network, the intimacy that you have, in your relationships that's what's going to make you feel good long term and so when i look at this concept of huga it's all about creating intimacy and closeness spending time with loved ones friends and family creating these intimate uh, environments and atmospheres and focusing on this type of connecting and so if your culture focuses on intimate connections that will definitely contribute to overall well-being, happiness. If you focus on being closer and closeness leads to happiness, that would make sense. And so there is this nice feeling that I got reading the book, watching some videos, talking to uh, people about this concept, that there is this focus on togetherness, on closeness, on trust, on feeling good amongst one another which I think definitely does contribute to that. And again, this sense that taking care of everyone, he mentioned Huga is a very egalitarian type of a mindset too. Everyone's taken care of when you have a gathering. No one person has too much of the spotlight. Everyone's voice is heard and is important. People don't put themselves above one another. There is this very uh, much a sense of togetherness. I did hear in an interview, he talked about the dark side of Huga, which is because it's so focused on the intimacy and the closeness, he feels that at times um, the Danish people can be wary of adding new people to a group or connecting people. So let's say you're going to go see a friend for dinner and someone else asks you what you're doing. In some cultures, American culture, you might see if it's possible to bring that person along or add them to the group or to the dinner. But he was saying that he thinks Danish people, because they don't want to ruin this sense of the intimacy, they might not invite the person. And it takes, a t- takes some time to break into a social group. But once you're in, then it's more, you're definitely in that group. So he said that's the dark side where he thinks Danish people can be more open to adding new people and getting out of that comfort zone. But once you're in, then there is this, this strong sense uh, of intimacy. So I think that is something we can take from this concept again it doesn't mean if you want to be happy you have to just follow this this secret to happy living as the subtitle says that'll make everything easier but i do think uh, a focus on intimacy a focus on connections and a focus on doing it every day because that's something very important he talked about in the uh the danish person i talked to also said the same thing that it's something that is a focus every day even when you're by yourself creating this coziness but especially with others trying to create that warmth, that conscious coziness with one another, which creates intimacy, which of course does lead to our well-being and happiness. So there is something there for sure, which I thought was quite interesting. So I thought it was a a nice book, uh, a very warm book itself, very Huga itself, um, and worth checking out. That's The Little Book of Huga by Mike Beeching. Beeching? Beeching? Hmm. It's W-I-K-I-N-G. Even someone helped you with pronouncing, and I've said it wrong three times. But anyway, The Little Book of Hugo by Mike Veeching, Danish Secrets to Happy Living. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, The Little Book of Huga by Mike Veaching. I don't know, something like that. Um, I apologize to the author. I actually watched a few of his talks and I thought he was quite delightful in the way he talks about happiness and the focus on happiness and that we want to focus on that as, I think, a society in each country to, to look at that. And so in studying happiness, he's seen some of the things that contribute to making a people happy. But as I mentioned, he talks about he considers an important part of making Denmark the happiest country or one of the happiest countries, depending on which survey we are looking at, is because people are so taken care of. And so he says um, a few of the countries, the Scandinavian or Nordic countries, tend to score highly on measures of happiness. And that's actually what he says he thinks differentiates Denmark is this concept of Huga might be the reason why they might even be happier than other countries who have similar types of social security and social support for its citizens. But he does mention that he thinks that is a contributor because when everyone has their basic needs taken care of, there's also time for more time for relationships. And actually in Denmark, they tend to have one of the lower work week averages as far as uh, hours per week that people are working. So that allows more time for just taking care of yourself in general, but also pursuing relationships, pursuing things that contribute to our well-being. And I didn't realize that when I picked this book for this week, um, often it's related to things like scheduling that I pick different books, but the book I discussed last week, uh, The Future's Degrowth, was talking about some of the critiques it had on capitalism and the system that we live in and focusing solely on growth. How much did the GDP go up this year? And that is an indicator of a good year or a bad year, just based on that one number of growth, which has a few very clear flaws to it. One is that almost never is one number, one index, one indicator going to give you a comprehensive account or even a good account of how well something did, and that's very true here. Um, another is that growth as a goal sounds good, but when you consider it in a more long-term and a global scale, how could that possibly be the right mindset to constantly grow when you have, of course, finite resources or you're living on a planet with finite resources and um types of energy and things of that sort. How could that be the best approach? Just keep growing without looking at the impact you're having on the environment, on people's well-being and all those types of things. So unfortunately, that's another issue. And lastly, even this focusing on GDP or focusing on growth misses what actually makes people happy or feel good long term or makes us have a good life. And so in this book, actually, he quotes um, Robert Kennedy, who I think said this maybe 50 years ago, uh, basically that GDP measures everything except that which makes us happy or makes us live a good life. And I very strongly agree with that. And so what can we take from that also as individuals? Well, so I think definitely as a, as a society, uh, culturally, uh, globally, we want to focus on shifting what we focus on because right now 
we work for the economy or we serve the economy rather than the economy serving us. And I mentioned this last week that when we were facing the pandemic, we still are, but earlier in the pandemic, there was discussions of, well, do we save the economy or do we save lives? Do we open everything up and maybe risk losing lives or definitely will lose lives? Or do we keep things closed and save lives? And it probably wasn't that black or white, but that was the type of argument that was being made, which to me is laughably sad to consider that that's how we were looking at things, to put that type of a focus on maybe it's more important to save the economy than to save lives. That to me is a clear indication that the economy is the focus rather than us as humans. So we're serving the economy rather than the economy serving us. But looking at ourselves, he does mention the often mentioned statistics of how, yes, you need your basic needs met, which again is why these countries tend to be happier when people are taken care of in that way. But as an individual, you need your basic needs met. But after a certain amount, more money, more income will not make you happier. Even really short term, maybe very shortly short term, but even in the medium term and definitely in the long term, it won't lead to more happiness. So we have to understand that. I think also having a capitalistic mindset creates this type of a focus on if you make more money, it's always good. Growth individually is good economically. If I'm having more and more money and focus on making more and more money, then I'm going to have a good life or I'm going to be happy. But So in that way, it's almost like we're serving our own personal economy rather than our personal economy serving us. And that is also problematic, but it's so ingrained in us that that is the way to live to the point where if you tell someone, okay, you're going to add an hour to your commute, but you're going to make 30% more every year. Well, people think, well, that's, that's worth it, or it could be worth it. Now, again, if your basic needs are not met, maybe you'll have to do that for yourself and your family. But if we don't look at it that way if your basic needs are met a lot of people still think that might be the right decision to do something that i know will be bad for my well-being adding time to my commute a significant amount of time to my commute but i'm making more money and if i have more money there's always something logical about that even that's something that bothers me about a lot of research that has fueled economic types of thinking or especially when we're even looking at the psychology of individuals is that if someone does something that makes them more money or gets more money, that's rational. If they do the thing that doesn't make them more money, it's irrational or illogical, emotional. When the main factor, really the only factor they're looking at is the money the person has, where that's just one aspect of well-being or one aspect of the person. So just to focus on how much they have financially as the right decision has contributed strongly to this focus that we all tend to have, that if I make more money, that's good. And so when we look at our own lives, we have to consider our personal economic situation and recognize that more money, although because of how we've been uh, raised, especially in America, but in many countries, that's our focus. And so this is related to what I was saying, that when a country culture focuses on something, that becomes the way that people tend to think. So the Danish people will focus on creating Hygge, this type of 
intimacy and Americans will think of making money, making money being the thing that makes them feel better. That's what we should be going for rather than creating intimacy. And so that's something I think we definitely can learn from this book and from this concept from the Danish people that we want to spend our time focusing on our relationships, on creating genuine intimacy. That's another important concept, I think, in this mindset, because being social is good. And it's not that I would say it's bad to have big parties and do things of that sort. But what really seems to build intimacy is this more cozy type of an atmosphere, this slowing things down. That was also something that I, I noticed and he talks about in the book is there's a sense of slowing down. It's not a fast paced type of an evening. Maybe they watch a movie, but even the movie is not necessarily so focused on. It could be kind of there in the background or you're watching it, but it's a very casual laid back environment. But it's not that there's a lot going on. It's very slowed down. And so I think that's something that we uh, Americans, but also Iranians, we tend to think of social situations as very extravagant and needs to have, you know, be very loud and bright and so many things going on when really those things can be fun and have their place. But really what's going to create the intimacy is a more slowed down type of an experience. I watched a, a video today of, of Danish people and it was this family and they're saying, you know, even their daily dinners at night in this family were very focused on huga, this sense of intimacy. No one had their phones. Everyone could talk. The kids could talk. The parents would talk. There was communication. There was connection. There was a sense of warmth and togetherness. There's a slowness to it that creates a type of connection that you don't get when it's people just trying to quickly eat and get out of the dinner table to go to their life, which I think is more important. And that's often what we focus on is things that actually don't lead to our overall well-being and our overall happiness. So that's something I feel like we all can pay attention to, not just the coziness of putting on some warm socks and sitting by a fire, even though those are very nice types of things, but that type of emotional intimacy that so often can be missing from our fast-paced type of a life or our life focused on social media where you might have uh, you know, 100,000 friends, 5,000 friends, 500 friends, but you really don't have an intimate or close connection or relationship with any of them. As he mentions in the book, one of the signs of well-being is when you ask someone, how many people can you call on if you were going through a hard time or if you really needed help? And for many people, especially in the United States, that number is zero or maybe one. And that is a big indicator of how you are doing much more than how much money you have, or how many followers you have, or any of those types of things. So I do find that concept very, very important and something that we definitely can learn and take for ourselves, recognizing how much time am I investing in my relationships and creating emotional intimacy, and how much am I affected by the mindsets of my culture of focusing on certain things like making money or having things which don't lead to my well-being. So some thoughts and lessons there from the little book of Huga by Mike Viching. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I was talking about this concept of Huga, which is a Danish word, which doesn't have a direct translation 
in English. You have to come up with a few words or a few um, concepts to really cover it. We find that in different languages, there are different words and different connections between uh, the words that help us understand them, but also affect the way that you think. And this is why it's found that individuals who are bilingual tend to be more creative or even more than one language will be more creative because language is not just words. It includes a way of thinking embedded in it, oftentimes very subtle, but different languages will emphasize certain things or not emphasize certain things. Some languages have genders, some don't, some have them for all words, some don't have them for all words. And so we see many ways that the language you learned actually will affect the way you think, but in ways that you can't be aware of because it's just the way that you think. So it's kind of like that old adage of one fish asking the other fish, how's the water? And then the fish responds, what's water? Because that's where they've always lived and what they've experienced. They don't recognize it as something that is different or could be different. So our language affects the ways that we think and our language also can affect the ways that we feel. And Lisa Feldman Barrett is a neuroscientist and she's written several books, a few that I've covered on the show. And she talks a lot about how important the words that we give to our feelings are. There's a lot of research showing that when we accurately describe the feeling we have with the word, it can itself help with our feeling and having it even calm down a bit or processing it in that way, which is why it can be so valuable when someone could recognize and say that. And the granularity of that is very important. So angry can be different from frustrated to enraged. And when it's accurately described and we can accurately think of it, it actually can be more helpful. So um, and in that book, in one of her books, uh, How Emotions Are Made, she talks about how different cultures will have certain feelings that other cultures don't have. And that can affect how people feel, how they experience them. Also, when there's a word to a feeling, that itself can be normalizing because people will say it a lot. So again, uh, my friend was telling me that huga is a word that people use all the time, or even they'll talk about how hugalink something was. I'm not really saying that part probably right either, but basically how much huga it induced it. The, they went somewhere, how much huga they felt in that night. So they focus on it a lot because it's a word that they commonly use. So if you hear a word being used a lot in, in your language, then you might be aware that that's a feeling that many people experience. And so sometimes there's interesting connections between words. One that I find interesting, again, this is as someone who at least, I would say I'm bilingual to an extent because my Farsi is not uh, quite good. Anyone who's spoken to me in Farsi, or when you hear me say Ghazala's uh, name at the end of the show, you'll hear my accent. Uh, but when you hear my accent, you know that my Farsi is not very good. My Persian is not very good. But I do know some of the words enough to know, for example, it's interesting that the word for, let's say, the right direction, your right hand, and in both Farsi, Persian, and in English, it also means being correct. So if you say, oh, he was right, she was right, you mean they were correct, the right hand. If you say, rast guft, I guess that's what you can say, like they said the right thing. In Farsi, it's the same thing. Rast means right, and rast means as in correct, but it also means the direction. So it's interesting when you see that in many languages, actually that is the case, that the direction right also means correct. And so 
I've seen some different explanations for this. One is that most people are right-handed, so it's stronger. It's the stronger side or the stronger position. So that's the more correct position. Also, we see in many cultures, there was a tendency to think that being left-handed was somehow wrong or evil even. And so I'm sure many of you have even listening. Uh, my aunt actually is one of these people who probably were left-handed, but were forced to become right-handed. And so uh, left-handed people were often considered to be even evil or having some kind of negative spirit or bad Something was bad about them, so they were forced to become right-handed, the more correct way of being. So it's just interesting to see these types of connections between language and the ways we think and how they, they impact us. And so when we think of a word, when we think of a meaning, we tend to think of a what we call a semantic meaning, like the words, what they mean in a word way, right? So if I say map, you say, okay, map is like a picture of a place. And yes, that is true. But what we often don't recognize is that words always have feelings too. What I mean is that you have a feeling towards different words. And so this works in multiple levels. There is the cultural level or the people who speak a language where you'll find that different words have what we might call a connotation or certain feelings attached to it that many people will feel something about this word, positively, negatively, and much more granular than that. It might have more layers to it because of the culture and the language. But of course, individually, you will have different feelings towards the words themselves because of your own experiences. One of the biggest ways we see this is with names. And so when we think of how feelings change, and I'm actually curious to, to read this book this week about how minds change, but it's related to this, how feelings change, because how feelings change is also relevant to how our thinking changes about moral issues. Because uh, when we think of making a moral decision, we tend to think it's purely logical and rational and based on the arguments. But what research finds is that, and uh, Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of research on this, when we're thinking of moral issues, we first have an emotional reaction and then we come up with the reasons afterward. Should gay people be able to get married? You have a feeling about that. Now you have the feeling, which is yes or no, and then you'll come up with the reasons after, well, oh, you know, they shouldn't because it's not natural. And then you say, well, it's actually in the animal kingdom. Well, no, because it's gonna lead to, you know, underpopulation. It's like, no, that probably won't be an issue. And you'll come up with your reasons, but really it's more about your feeling. And even if we look at the United States in the last 20 years, we see that the feeling of people has changed overall to become much more accepting of gay marriage. 20 years ago, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but many, few, far fewer people were okay with gay marriage as compared to now. And nothing has changed about people being not straight and wanting to get married, but people's feeling has changed. And so we can see that the ways we feel about things is very important about how we think. And also the names and the words that we have can change in a similar way. So sometimes I give an example of showing you how um, a word or a name can change uh, based on our experiences and the feelings attached to it. And one of the ways 
Um, I like to illustrate this as thinking about how things show up on your phone. So let's say you meet someone, the, the author of this book. It's really Mike, like M-E-I-K, but let's say Mike. So you meet someone named Mike. And let's say it's a date, so you're maybe kind of interested in them. But, you know, at the beginning, they text you and you see their name on your phone. You see Mike and you think, okay, oh, that's that person that we matched on the dating site. All right. Nice, nice person. So we talk a little bit. After you talk to them for a while, you go on a date. Now, when you start seeing that name on your phone, if you start getting closer to that person and have feelings for them, we even say feelings for them, emotional, romantic feelings. When you see their name on your phone, you might feel something, a little butter, some butterflies in your stomach or some excitement. That same name, which before had a little, almost no feeling for you, now has feeling. Oh, that's this person. That's that name that's attached to that person. So, of course, it's not the name itself. It's who it's attached to that gets you excited. And so now you say that, see that name and you get excited and you get closer and closer. You get even more excited. And not, now it's more than just excitement. You might feel feelings of love or warmth when you see their name and anticipation of when you might see them again. If you fall in love, now you might have even more intense feelings. And now the story is going to get sad because let's say they break your heart in some way. So now you see that same name that two days ago made you feel so warm and feel so good. Now the name itself brings all these feelings of heartbreak and pain and bittersweet feelings of you made me feel so good, but now it made me feel so bad and I hate you or I'm so mad at you. So that loving feeling can turn to anger still to that name. Again, of course, it's because it's attached to that person. And slowly that can start to change over time. You don't think about that person as much. So you see the name, it might give you some feeling, but not as intense. And then over time, a few years, you date someone else, you'll go live your life. You see that same name and it almost gives you no feeling again. So you can see that one name, Mike in this case, gave you this whole roller coaster of feelings at different times because of your experience with that person. The, the word itself didn't change, but your experience with the person it was attached to did change. Uh, the most extreme example of this I think of sometimes is when someone names their kid a certain name. So you have that name and you maybe have heard it before in your life. Maybe it has some significance in some way, but nonetheless, now it's attached to your child. And now the name is just something different, right? It has such a significance for you. You can never see that word the same way again. And so actually it reminds me or makes me think of um, Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet. There's a very famous part uh, which is spoken and it goes like this. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, which is true. You know, if we called that flower that is uh, a rose something else, you know, whatever you want to call it, it would still be that same rose. It has the same essence. So that's essentially what Shakespeare is saying. But I thought of it also, we can think of it the other way. But yes, but the word rose wouldn't sound as sweet if it weren't the name given to the flower with that sweet smell. So when we hear the word rose, it makes us feel certain things, maybe romance, maybe the beauty of the rose, some kind of connection. Maybe someone gave you roses or you gave someone roses and has a feeling. And so because it's attached to that flower, that word rose also gives you some feeling. So in that way, the relationship goes both ways. Yes, the rose would still smell as sweet, but I actually think it's almost the other way around. The word rose wouldn't sound as sweet if it wasn't attached 
to that flower if it wasn't the name we gave to that flower. So just some thoughts of looking at language and the feelings that, that it gives us and that we don't even realize the feelings that it brings our way. And every day we have experiences or feelings with certain words that we might not even recognize. For example, Google. I think Google means one with, is it a million zeros or a hundred? No, a hundred zeros. hundred zeros? I'm not sure. But Google is a number. Uh, you can probably Google it, and maybe I'll do that right now as I'm talking to you. But Google is actually a number. And I remember when I was younger hearing the number, that it was a number, Google, someone told me, do you know what Google is? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Um, and they said, it's, I think it's one with a hundred zeros. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And that was when I was in elementary school. Um, and, you know, whoever told me that taught me something. I was like, oh, very interesting. By the way, I'm trying to Google yet. So Google is 10 to the hundredth power, which is one followed by a hundred zeros. Okay. So it's a number, but now to almost none of us, when we hear Google, do we think of a number? We think of... The, the big company, the search engine, the thing we do when we're trying to look for something. And now it's hard to even remember. Even for me, it was hard to remember what the number was, but before it only existed for me in that way. So it's very interesting that language is this living thing. It's not this static thing. Sometimes we think, well, there's a dictionary, and there is, and it helps, but we have to recognize that the dictionary is not frozen in time because words change meaning, meaning, the associations change, new words are added, and some words, they don't necessarily get erased, but over time, words don't get used, and so they can become essentially erased because they're erased from the spoken and written language, and they no longer exist. But not only that, the feelings we attach to words can change, and that means that we have to adapt with it as well. So there is definitely... Um, a movement in cancel culture and sometimes overly wokeness that people have where they can be too sensitive about words. I think it definitely goes too far. But I also recognize that there is value in all of this because of what I was saying, that feelings are attached to words and words are attached to feelings. And because of that, they can have an impact. And those feelings can also change of what's okay and not okay or what's hurtful, harmful to people and what is not. And as we learn about things being harmful, those things change. So there's an F word, which I won't say either of them, but there's an F word that you definitely can't say on TV or radio. Um, it's a short one. And then there's an F word that is attached to gay men, which is very bad. Now, in my own lifetime, I've definitely seen, felt myself such a change in my reaction to that word. And I think that's actually quite good because it's a very harmful and hateful word that felt more okay to say before and now doesn't feel as okay. And that to me is actually a sign of progress, of recognizing how a word can be hurtful and harmful because of the feelings attached to it, the feelings it can evoke in people. And we learn because language is a living thing and is evolving and changing that we can use it now in a different way, or be mindful that using it might have a different meaning than it did when you said it. So uh, I once posted a tweet, something like, you know, language is like currency where each, uh, or like money where the, the words can change currency or change value. And we have to be aware of that. We can't just say, well, I used to say this, so I can still say it. It might be mean something else, just like the euro might be a 
less than a dollar now. It used to be worth more. You can't just say, well, this is what I used to buy with a euro or 10 euros. Things change. So we have to be mindful that language is this living, breathing thing within each of us and also uh, within society and cultures, we will see these changes in language. All right. That brings us to the end of today's tonight's show. And as advertised, uh, I'll, I'll pronounce the word wrong very quickly right now. A big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.